Hello and welcome to The Culture Shop, a podcast brought to you by Midas, the leading independent agency for culture. Today's guest has spent most of her career covering the beautiful game. Alison Bender has been on the inside with Real Madrid and Chelsea, as well as observing from the outside, in studios and on the touchline as a journalist for the BBC, Sky and ESPN, among others. When she set out, the sport was most certainly a man's world. So we started by discussing how she ended up following an unwelcoming career path. Yeah, so football actually came a little bit later than the presenting, the love of presenting, to be honest. I mean, I've always been um, a Chelsea fan. My dad was a huge Chelsea fan um, growing up. But to be honest, it, was, it wasn't really something I, you know, he took me to the odd match here and there. Um, and I wasn't a c- crazy football fanatic at all. But what I was passionate about was making television. So I ended up working uh, for a news channel, actually, straight after university, CNBC, business news channel, working on everything from politics, business, a little bit of sports as well, and, and ended up doing that full-time for about six years. So a broadcast assistant, basically, working, writing scripts, uh, working on news desk, booking guests, rolling autocue, editing, all the rest of it, and got my kind of love of television from there. Um, and then it was only after working there for a great many years, I actually decided to perhaps go to the other side of the camera, um, try a little bit of presenting. Um, and my job that I got, my first job in football, which was super lucky, was actually going out to Madrid to set up Real Madrid Television, um, which they wanted. I mean, it was lucky, really, because they wanted a, an exec producer primarily. And because of all my producing experience, I got the gig. But they also wanted me to be a presenter. So that's kind of how I ended up in football, I suppose. And, uh, and we'll go on to your career and, and your career in broadcasting shortly. But I'm just very interested in your as a your experience of, of sport as a as a young girl, but um, and how it might compare to a young girl today. Did you get the chance to play football? Was it offered to you at all? No, that was the sad thing. Actually, in my day, um, when I was at school in the eighties, football just wasn't for girls. And at the time, I actually didn't really want to play football. I was more into netball. But there were a couple of girls that were desperate to play football, and we were literally told that we just couldn't do it, um, which is such a great shame. And when you hear so many stories, I've just finished reading um, Eniola Aluko's book autobiography, and she was saying that you know how she ended up having to play with the boys because no girls really played football and it wasn't encouraged, um, which is really sad. And I sort of think, I wonder how different things would have been and how much easier my pathway would have been if I'd actually been allowed to play football. Um, I played a little bit um, at university and just after university in an all girls team in Hyde Park. Um, but nothing, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't decent by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but yeah, really it was just, it was very close to me as a young girl. And now I know you're a mum, but uh, uh, are you seeing the differences for young kids or young young girls uh, in terms of opportunities and, and sport? Absolutely. And, it, and it's so good for me because I've got a little boy and a, and a girl and my boy is football mad. He, he always has been. I, I guess I've had a little bit to do with that. Um, but my, my girl, she's only three years old, but she was doing football. She was in football club from two years old. As soon as she was able to kick a ball, she was able to attend some kind of football club, um, which is just amazing. And the difference um, will be, you know, it'll be it'll be so different from from what I was subjected to, I suppose. Um, and it, there's just obviously UEFA and, and FIFA and the FA are trying desperately to get more girls into football and, you know, put the pathways in place. 
But I think it will just, it will be so important just to see them have those kind of opportunities that I never had. So you missed out on football when you were younger and then, and then sort of fell into or merged into it during your broadcasting career. Uh, were you very conscious all the time that you were entering a man's world? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I really did fall in love with football because I, I ate, slept, drank it when I was at Real Madrid. I mean, it was a full on job and I didn't really have any friends out there because I moved to Madrid just to do the job. And so I just absorbed myself into football. I read, I was very aware of the backgrounds that I'd missed. So I read every single football autobiography going and, and it's funny. I sometimes, I, I use this a lot in my life. I think sometimes if you start from a lower base, you actually end up learning a bit more because, for example, when I had to cover a Champions League game, I decided to research the entirety of the history of the Champions League, whereas maybe a guy, um, you know, a, ma- a male who'd grown up knowing football, because they just have that generic sort of base level anyway, maybe wouldn't have had to do that kind of research. Um, and so I, I ended up, I guess, coming quite a stato and really getting into to, to the football and the tactics and everything. Um, because I'd read so much, and then one thing read to an, one thing led to another, so I ended up just 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 absorbing myself in football. I, I always joke about it, kind of being like taking a degree in football, basically, um, which you know it was kind of sad that I had to learn it, but then the passion kind of came from there. So it was a lot later in my life, but I certainly feel as as passionate um, now, even though I wasn't kind of brought, you know brought up in a in a football baby grow or whatever. Do you think it was just that men would have more likely have known more about football just because of society? Was there a self-confidence issue there as well, which might have applied to you, but often applies to a lot of women? Yeah, definitely. Because I think that's the thing, that's your default conversation in school between boys. When I was growing up, all the boys used to just talk about football and that wasn't something that we did. So I definitely felt like there might be gaps in my knowledge, even though I loved it. So I felt like I had to work a lot harder. I also felt like I just couldn't make the same mistakes. I felt like any, any mistake that I made in football would just be highlighted and it would feel huge. Whereas I sometimes hear you know, pundits and ex-players make a mistake that I just think there's no way I could have got away with that mistake, whether it's a mispronunciation or, you know, just something that's factually incorrect. So I suppose it just made me work harder. And, you know, I don't blame society for that because I'm the same. I really am. I really get it. Like when I hear girls make mistakes, I think you instantly jump to the conclusion they don't know about football, which is wrong, I know, but it's just one of those things. And I knew I was up against that. Um, and so I thought, if I love this and I want to do it, I have to be prepared and I have to be as best as I can be. I think that's very true. I mean, I was watching the rugby this weekend and uh, I disagreed with one of the pundits who happened to be a woman and I sort of reacted quite strongly. And then I thought, <laughs> oh, Ben, is that the inner sexist in you coming out? Or maybe not so inner. Um, <laughs> yeah. But t- tell me about arriving at the Bernabeu as a, as a woman. What sort of welcome did you get? Oh, my goodness. It was incredible. I mean, I always say it was the best job I ever had. Um, I mean, I was really looked after because it was Florentino Perez was in charge and he was very into the image of Real Madrid. And they really spent a lot of money on that football channel. I've, I've known many people at Liverpool Football Club and at MUTV and Chelsea TV I work for as well. And I just don't think anyone could quite imagine the kind of um, attention Real Madrid television was given. It was you know, 15 camera extravaganza. They threw so much money at it. Um, and so I was treated so well. I was, um, you know, they, they put me up in a, in a hotel for the first few months to kind of just get to know Madrid. Um, when I went to the, the 
training grounds and meet the players. It was full introductions. It was, um, we, we had incredible access to the players. We were able to go and watch training every day. Um, you know, we traveled for Champions League games, stayed in the same hotels. It was, it really was access like you would not believe. And so that was, I guess, another reason for me to love the football as much as I did, because I was allowed to see so much behind the scenes. And also, um, I should point out, this was back in 2005. So it was the Galactico era. So to be faced with those players like Zidane when he was playing, David Beckham, Raul, Roberto Carlos, I mean, the list goes on. These were players who were, you know, international players at the top of their game. So it wasn't just like watching regular football. This was watching some of the greatest footballers on the planet. And um, I mean, I don't want to dwell on the negative, but uh, what did you come across any sexism? Do you know, I don't think I really did in Madrid. I, I, I think it was a very strange situation because there were six of us starting up the, the television channel and three of us were girls, three of us were guys. And it, it felt like we were all very, very passionate about the job. And in the Spanish version of the channel, there were also many females doing it. So I don't think I really noticed the sexism in quite the same way. The only time I noticed it actually was when Fabio Capello was manager. I was watching a training session just as I had done with every other manager. And I noticed him kind of shooing me away from the sidelines. And I was, it actually took me aback a bit. I, I thought, am I, am I really seeing this? Is he actually telling me to stand back a bit? Um, and I think he felt like I was distracting the players, which maybe it was a distraction. I don't know. But obviously that wasn't my intention. I was desperate to, to, to read all the tactics. I was writing down all the players that were training and what they were doing. Um, and I got really upset about that. And actually, uh, the following week at Real Madrid TV, we were told that we had to wear a uniform um, in case what we were wearing was too distracting, which is hilarious, really, because, you know, we weren't wearing sexy clothing at all. And then what we were given was a, a, a polo shirt, basically, um, only to be told a few weeks later that actually that was worse. So it... Little situations like that, I suppose you could say, came into play. Every now and again, a player would kind of kick a football at you at the side, and it kind of made you think you were different from whether it had been a male, I suppose. And that, that Galacticos era, um, did it ever seem slightly unreal to you, all that money, all that stardom? Uh, did you feel disconnected from where you were originally from? Not really, to be honest. It just, it became my life. So it was what I was used to. So, you know, every, every transfer window, when they made a signing, they made such a big deal of it. There was um, a huge unveiling at the Bernabeu, all the fans would come along. I think it only really dawned on me when I moved from Real Madrid to Chelsea, to Chelsea TV, how things were, uh, you know, a much smaller scale. I think that's when it suddenly hit me how ridiculous Real Madrid had been in those days and you know with all that money yeah no quite quite a time so t tell us about life in football in the UK yeah it's very different I mean it, it it is fantastic there is I think social media Twitter has um been the most negative thing really I I don't I don't tend to feel sexually discriminated against necessarily in the workplace but if you if you have an opinion on Twitter and you put it out there um, and it's something that people don't agree with, I mean, literally the, the kind of responses that you get are pretty vile. And I mean, I feel really lucky because I'm, I'm older now and I can deal with it. And I have that background behind me now and all this hard work. I've been doing it for 20 years. But I think if I was a young girl coming through now and reading that on Twitter, 
it, it just, it would be very difficult to cope with. And sometimes you'd actually think, I'm just not, I'm not cut out for this. I don't have a thick skin because we may be a broadcaster or a journalist, but it doesn't necessarily mean we've got thick skin. And, and you know, so many of the times, so many things people have said is, has been hurtful. Yeah, I, I wonder, that, that's not just football, to be fair to the sport. I mean, that that's virtually the same for any woman who sticks their head above the parapet on social media. Exactly. And and that's the thing. And, you know, why should you have to stick to one thing? I mean, we've only just seen Marcus Rashford, haven't we, you know, forcing the, the government into a U-turn um, on, you know, feeding children. And and people told him to stick to football. And if he had stick to, stuck to football, we wouldn't have seen that great social change. So I do think it's important. You know, if you have an opinion, why shouldn't you be allowed to say it? But this is actually my job. This is all I taught. You know, if you go on Twitter and follow me on Twitter, Ali Bender TV, by the way, um, all I tweet about is football pretty much. Maybe one in a hundred tweets will be non-football. And so it's just tiresome when someone wants to kind of have a pop at you. But my friend Jackie Oatley, friend and colleague, um, has the best way of dealing with them. And she basically says, I'm sorry, I don't have time to respond to this because I'm only busy doing my dream job or something along the lines. Although it is provoking, it just kind of reminds everyone. And tell us about the um, the players. I mean, uh, sorry to sound like a fanboy, but uh, who, who are the characters you've enjoyed interacting with over the years as a pundit in football? I mean, I've been super lucky, as I said, because I've worked for club channels, I've had some really, really good access. Um, and so obviously the big names, I mean, when I was at Real Madrid, being able to interview David Beckham when he was at the peak of his powers um, was absolutely brilliant and always felt like a massive privilege. Um, when I came to Chelsea TV, it's, it's strange actually to think that I had regular interviews with John Terry and Frank Lampard, and now they're managing, um, you know, in football clubs, which is crazy. So obviously Lampard back at Chelsea and John Terry at Aston Villa. Um, but that was always, that was always nice to speak to Frank Lampard because he's a very intelligent, he's always been a very intelligent footballer. And I could see that he would actually go on to management even back then. And I just, one of the, one of the, very best interviews I've ever done and it's weird actually because a lot of my best experiences were maybe sort of a decade ago when I was working for the Premier League but this one came more recently I was given the opportunity to interview Steven Gerrard Um, but the reason it was so different is because I was actually doing it as a corporate event and it was in a car so I was actually driving him around which was surreal and I always assumed there'd be a press officer in the car with us because that's always been the situation but it was bizarre because it was just me and Stephen Gerrard driving through the Scottish Highlands um, to Ibrox. And it was, it was so magical to actually be able to have a conversation with a footballer with no one kind of breathing down your neck, telling you this is the last question, saying you can't speak about that. Um, and it just felt really refreshing, which it sounds like a normal thing to have just a conversation with a person. But with footballers, you, you rarely get that, as I'm sure you know, Ben. And how have you found it just as a journalist? Um, uh, how how easy is it sometimes to ask a difficult question? I mean, there's all sorts of issues with access. These are very important people to your employer. Um, have you found it difficult sometimes to ask the question that you want to ask? Yes, it is difficult because some of the things, I think being a written journalist is sometimes a bit um, easier because you can warm someone up, you can warm a player up to the really difficult question that you want to ask. Um, The problem is when you're uh, uh, in broadcast, sometimes you're only given one or two questions. And so if you have something really pressing, really hard hitting, there is no time for that kind of fluffy warming up question. And so you're bang straight in, um, which is not really in my nature. I'm quite a 
chatter, as you might have noticed. And I like to, I like to warm up to the questions. So I do find that really difficult. Sometimes it helps being a girl because perhaps they, um, maybe the players expect you to be a bit softer and a bit more emotional and not ask the difficult questions. And so sometimes you actually get a really decent answer, perhaps because they're not expecting it. They're all, there's always a little bit of sexism in play. And I don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing. It's just something that we're, you know, we are innately tuned to think that women are a little bit more emotional, perhaps. It's just one of those things. And tell us about some of the, the projects you're embarking on now. Tell us about Talent Takes Time. Yeah, I mean, that just came about during lockdown, to be honest, when I a lot of my work I had to give back, unfortunately, because I wasn't able to do it because, you know, football was cancelled, first of all, and then not as many journalists were going into stadiums. And I was, I wouldn't say I was bored because I've got two young children to look after and I've got lots of projects I'm involved in, but I felt like I was missing the actual um, presenting side of things and the interviewing. So basically, I, I launched a series of conversations um, with women in the industry that I knew, basically my friends. To, to basically show people um, the kind of the, the hidden truths behind this industry. Because I think um, at the moment, there are so many people contacting me asking about how I get into the industry. And I thought the best way is to actually sort of have a series of conversations kind of showing people exactly what the industry is like. Uh, and it was really refreshing, actually, because there's loads of women who I've known for a really long time. Um, but speaking about things that perhaps people hadn't spoken about before, and it was really nice to kind of have that solidarity, um, everyone speaking about it. Um, and I, I always think, I don't know, knowledge is power, a bit cheesy. But if you know you're getting into something, it's not quite as difficult when you actually experience it, I think. And and distill some of the uh, um, conversations you've had, the, the, the advice you've been giving. I mean, it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because like, people ask me advice now and I, I'm getting on in years and it, it's such a different world. That, you know, I'm 25 years older than some of the graduates applying. Uh, but, but what advice do you give to young people who want to be the next Alison Bender? Yeah. Um, well, the, the biggest piece of advice I have been giving people, and it's actually really good because quite a few of my guests said the same thing, is there's no substitute for hard work. And I know you'll agree with that. It's Some people are lucky and they're parachuted into to elevated positions quite quickly, but most people have to start from the bottom and work their way up. And I was speaking to Elizabeth Ammon, actually, who's a, a reporter for The Times, and she was saying, cricket reporter, she was telling me how she actually started off in politics and how she had a massive pivot, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but every single thing is part of your unique pathway. And so she'll be really good at asking difficult questions if she's used to dealing with government and politics, for example. And so even though there are things in your life you might think might be a waste or something, my biggest kind of message is all this hard work is never a waste because it's becoming your kind of unique selling point and putting you in that direction that's different from everyone else. And um, the other thing I say is like, just embrace your kind of yourself and be yourself because authenticity is like more important than ever. I mean, in our day, when I started out, you kind of had to look like a carbon copy of everyone else and you had to present and sound in a certain way. But now organizations are actually allowing you to be yourself and have your own personality more than ever. So in fact, uh, you know, that's one of the biggest things I can say is don't try and be someone else because actually nowadays you're encouraged just to be yourself, which in a way, you know, people starting out now, perhaps in that respect, have it a lot easier than people starting out when I did. Yeah, well, that, that sounds very good advice to me. I mean, the other thing I'd say is uh, meet people. You know, there's no uh, so many opportunities come through um, networking 
and yeah, I know that that's easier for some than others, but the more you can actually press the flesh of people making the decisions, the better it is. I don't exactly. know if that's something you've had as well. Yeah, it's true. And that's why COVID is so, so sad because, I mean, this is the hardest time to make contacts. I mean, I've been really lucky that I'm, I've been still going to football games during this lockdown, but I've noticed that I just don't have the contact with people that I used to. So in the old days, I would have been down the tunnel. I'd be able to speak to the physios and the press officers and I'd have a chat with a club doctor, perhaps, or the psychologist and, and all the people behind the scenes and nutritionists, everything that's, you know, that gives you a picture of the whole team. And now, because of COVID, we're masked, we're kept at a two-meter distance. And this is someone who's obviously established within my career. If you're starting out, you just can't get those contacts. I mean, um, one of the things that kept coming up in my Talent Takes Time series is, you know, pick up the phone because a lot of people sort of hide behind emails and they think that they've they've ticked a box because they've sent someone an email. But I think, you know, if you're able to actually connect with someone even if it's sort of through a friend through a friend through a friend um to actually have a conversation and to arrange a face-to-face meeting or a zoom call i suppose now um is more important than just sending an email because you can actually get a bit of personality across when you're face-to-face absolutely right and as somebody who works in industry as, a, as an employer um you get a lot of emails and uh, it's very hard to stand out electronically uh, in someone's inbox uh just to, i mean to, to talk about some current events i mean there was obviously the uh, the chairman of the fa recently had to resign for a series of comments uh, where he insulted several minority groups but uh, i think the, the one about women in particular was um young girls not liking the ball being hit hard at them uh, when they were yeah. in goal um, were you, I, I, I was quite shocked by those. Uh, with your background, were you rather less surprised? Well, it's a tricky one, really, that Greg Clark's comments, because I actually think so. He, he was he was incredibly foolish, and, he, and he's obviously not well enough educated for someone in that position as well. Um, we all know that it's important. Language is important. It's really important to know, um, you know, what you're supposed to say, um, how you're supposed to refer to people as well. Um, the women comment, I think, was a strange one because actually he was he was telling retelling a story told to him by someone else and quoting it, speaking about a coach. So, you know, it wasn't really his words per se, but then again, why on earth would he choose to bring up that story? Um, and it was, it was more than unfortunate that within one half an hour conversation, he managed to insult um, the gay population, the black population, the female population, and one other, I think, as well. So, you know, a terrible hat-trick, at least, of errors. So, to be honest, it didn't surprise me that he had to go. And I actually think, um, you know, going forwards, you need someone in that position who just understands, who just gets it, um, particularly in the FA who are trying to encourage diversity. That is like their main message at the moment. So you just have to be more careful, unfortunately. And I understand you're writing a book. Tell us about it. Yeah, again, another little side project, side hustle, they're calling it. Um, I suppose because I had a little bit of time during lockdown, I started it sort of vaguely about a couple of years ago. And then, then I sort of used lockdown to sort of put the meat on the bones, I suppose. Um, to be honest, it was, it's all about my own journey and it was to encourage people um, to not be put off basically in life and to not be put off by the nose. Because when I started out, I was told that, you know, A, I didn't know about football. Um, 
B, I was young and naive and actually quite shy um, and didn't really like being in front of the football, uh, in front of the camera. And suddenly, you know, not suddenly, but over the years, I've managed to become um, a football presenter. And I, I just think it's one of those things that's to encourage people who are, you know, feeling like there's something, a passion that they want to pursue, but they keep being told no. I think that if you go about it in the right way, um, and if you have the patience and you're willing to put in the hard work, um, I think anyone can achieve anything. And so my book is basically my journey into football presenting. Some of the things I learned along the way is I've been telling young students who contact me about some of the, the sort of the, the big myths of this industry. So I, I sort of speak about that in the book. Um, and it's just really to, to give people a bit of encouragement and to say that you don't have to necessarily be the cleverest or the best, but if you're willing to put in the hours, um, you can achieve something that you really are passionate about. That was Alison Bender talking to me, Ben Munro-Davis, on The Culture Shot, a podcast brought to you by Midas, the leading independent agency for culture. You can follow Alison on Twitter at AliBenderTV. The music is Night in Venice by Kevin MacLeod. Thanks for listening.